Businesses in Ukraine have now found themselves on the front lines of Russia's economic war on Ukraine. And so far, it's had a pretty strong impact. Ukraine's GDP has been cut by a third. Wow. And Russia has mined deliberately vast quantities of Ukrainian fields. I mean, they even think, the government thinks, that as much as 25% could contain mines. West shouldn't make the same mistakes that it did with the tanks and the jets, which it took a long time to deliver. Um, we need to make these investments now. You still have, you know, corruption on a low level, you still have the oligarchs, and the impact is being felt. Hi everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kiev Independent explains the biggest events from Ukraine in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Masha Lavrova, and as you have probably noticed, Anastasia, your usual host, isn't here. She is currently on maternity leave, and while she can enjoy her time with her family, I'm going to try my best to fill in her shoes here. Today, we will talk about foreign investments in Ukrainian business, why they are so important, despite the risks like war and corruption, and while foreign investments might be risky, why they're so critical to bolstering Ukraine's economic front. Today, for the first time, Dominic Culverwell will be joining us. He is a business reporter at the Kiev Independent. Dominic, we're really happy to have you. I'm super happy to be here, Masha. Thank you. And before we begin, I would like to remind all of you guys to please subscribe to the Kiev Independent wherever you listen to this show. Remember to like and comment. You can even suggest the topics for future shows. It will take you only a few seconds, but it really means a lot to us. Thank you for your support. Thank you for helping us tell people about the news in Ukraine. Dominic, undoubtedly the war has affected everything in Ukraine, business included. And in the first months of the full-scale invasion, the economic front did take a back seat. But now, almost two years into the full-scale war, business revival and foreign investments are as prevalent as ever. So before we jump into discussing why foreign investors need to start coming into Ukraine now and not after the victory, could you tell us a little bit more about the economic landscape of Ukraine since the full-scale invasion? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I think people really need to understand is that there's the physical front, right, in the South and in the East, but there's also this economic front. That's all over Ukraine. I mean, businesses in Ukraine have now found themselves on the front lines of Russia's economic war on Ukraine. And so far, it's had a pretty strong impact. Ukraine's GDP has been cut by a third. Wow. Fortunately, however, Ukrainian businesses are pretty resilient and they're coming back. Just like Ukrainians do. Just like Ukrainians do. And actually it started to, the forecast last year was more optimistic. There was economic growth and mm. that will continue this year as well. I mean, slowly, but it's still impressive nevertheless. A lot of businesses, however, have really had to face new challenges, challenges that they didn't have before, ever. I mean, like drones and mines. So. The two major industries that we can look at here are agriculture and metallurgy. Mm -hmm. These are two of Ukraine's most prominent industries and two of the industries that have really taken a dive. But on the other hand, there's businesses that have seen opportunities. There's breweries, for example. And I actually know some guys back in my hometown in Oxford. They started to import Ukrainian beer and they were importing it to Oxford to sell in, in their local pub. That's awesome. Yeah, and it was going really, really well. People loved it. And I think people now realize that Ukraine has really cool products. 
Absolutely. Like this kind of like grim Soviet era stereotype of, of like dull and yeah. gray products is kind of long gone. It is. It is. And people, I think now there's a lot more interest in Ukraine and people are realizing this now. So there's a lot, there's negatives, there's some positives in there as well. But I think most importantly, I think people need to realize is that Ukrainian businesses, despite these new challenges, they are remaining resilient. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the biggest challenges that Ukrainian major industries such as agriculture and metallurgy have faced? So, I mean, with, with agriculture, I mean, one of the big problems is mines. Mm-hmm. I mean, Russia has mined deliberately vast quantities of Ukrainian fields. I mean, they even think, the government thinks, that as much as 25% could contain mines. That's not to say that they definitely do contain mines, but this is the area that needs to be inspected. And of course, this is having a big impact on Ukraine's agricultural industry. And it's a deliberate, you know, tool by Russia, Mm -hmm. deliberate form of attack on Ukraine's economy because farmers are unable to work in the fields. But also, I think it's a way of, you know, Russia just constantly trying to destroy Ukraine in every way possible, not only an economical front and cultural front and just, you know, with bombs and missiles to hurting people, but Ukrainians not being able to use their land. Because it's such a big part of Ukrainian identity and culture that I think that's, I don't know. I don't know true. if they're thinking about that. No, I, I think it's, it's certainly, it's a side effect of it, right? Whether it's something that's on the forefront of their minds or not, but it certainly is. And you see how devastated rural regions have been because of this. I was in Mykolaiv a few months ago and I was driving around and I remember seeing one side of the road on the left-hand side, you have kind of these fields that are being worked on, they're being planted. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, it was just endless rotting crops, sunflowers that have been rotting in for, for 18 months or so. And that's because there's mines in those fields. The farmers cannot touch them. And you drive through these villages and they're destroyed. There's no one there because there's no livelihood there as well. So you're right. I mean, it is taking a, a part of Ukraine's identity away. I think those dry sunflower fields are a perfect visual for this war. It's, you know, these fields that could be bringing so much food and, you know, money and life to towns into Ukraine and actually helping the world outside of Ukraine Mm. is Mm. people just can't use it. Not because something is happening in those fields, but just because we're unsure what is there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another, uh, another problem with the mines as well is, is it's going to take a really, really long time to get rid of them all. I saw a group of like three D-miners mm-hmm. and uh, they were clearing an area. It's about the size of a football pitch. Mm-hmm. And I asked, you know, like how long has this, has this taken? And the answer was nine months for the size of a football pitch. And you look around and there's just, you know, kilometers of, of football just pitches. kilometers of football pitches all with mines inside. And it's really, that was really heavy to see, to be honest. Yeah. There was this number going around that, you know, it's going to take hundreds of years to demine Ukraine. If all the area is mine that we think it is. So it is pretty devastating to yeah. just even think about it. You know, the other problem that agricultural producers faced was the exports. And actually they've done pretty well here. So Ukraine prior to full-scale invasion kind of exported mostly via the Black Sea, via its ports. Makes sense. In the south of Ukraine. But then Russia blocked those ports, again, as part of this economic war. So Fortunately, people kind of came together, the EU and Ukraine came together and they established something called the Solidarity Lanes Initiative in 2022. And so they managed to find alternative routes to export food products out, you know, whether that was by the roads, trucks with trains, trains. Mm -hmm. the the Danube River has played an important part. But actually, a 
a couple of months ago, they also started to go through this temporary corridor in the Black Sea, mm-hmm. actually to export goods that way from, from three from, from three ports. And I hear that it was, that's been actually pretty successful, right? Yeah, yeah. Surprisingly, because a lot of people were like, oh my God, you know, Russia's now going to like blow up those ships. They're not protected. Yeah. And they, they haven't so far properly. There was a few little incidents. Properly. <laughs> a few, well, you know, there were a few little incidents at, uh, at the very, very beginning, but, uh, and now they've exported, I think around 15 million tons of agricultural products. Wow. It's a lot. It's, it's looking pretty positive. But back to the bad news, sorry. Metallurgy. Metallurgy. Now, this is a really difficult situation um, because Russia has destroyed a lot of these plants and factories Mm -hmm. that produce steel and iron. And a lot of those factories, you know, they were in the south of Ukraine and in the east of Ukraine, which is where the most intense fighting is taking place. And most of occupied territories as well. Exactly. Exactly. So a good example of that, one of the major steel factories, steel plants in Ukraine was Azovstal in Mariupol which was just destroyed during the siege. And there was a very intense battle there that I'm sure everyone here remembers. So because of that, production for things like steel and pig iron, they've dropped by about 70% in 2022. Mm -hmm. They are, some plants are increasing. There's a plant in Zaporizhia, which is partially occupied, but the plant's located in the Ukrainian controlled area. They've managed to increase production last year. And um, yeah, there's also other kind of challenges that doesn't affect major industries, but, you know, things that affect everyone, missiles and drones, like having to now operate in a certain time frame because, you know, bars and restaurants, they could be open all night in Kiev. I remember, you know, six years ago, five years ago, you could have a really cool time up till four or five a.m. But now, of course, there's midnight curfew in lots of cities and sometimes it's even earlier. So people have had to adapt to these new scenarios. Yeah, and many difficult. businesses don't operate during the air raid alerts, right? I mean, I know there's some don't. shops and postal offices, I don't know if the big plants stop their production during that time, but mm. I'm assuming it still affects them. Yeah, I mean, they, they, um, it's up to the, you know, <laughs> the, the, the decision makers there about what to do. But certainly, yeah, supermarkets, a lot of them don't, don't operate either. Then, of course, there were things like energy attacks. That was really big last winter. Um, so energy companies themselves, you know, they were getting targeted by, by drones a lot of the time and occasionally missiles. So what they had to do was kind of build these defenses. We don't actually know a lot about these defenses yeah. for obvious reasons, but to protect themselves from things like falling debris, they have, uh, you know, like sandbags to protect some smaller infrastructure. But for businesses trying to operate during blackouts, on power cuts in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, they, they learn quite quickly, actually. Yeah, and generators galore last year. So, and, then, and you see them now, you go out onto the streets. Because people were ready city. for that again, because mm-hmm. you know, many people lived through last year experiencing the blackouts and the cold and businesses having to operate in these bizarre conditions that they still continued operating in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they you know, really found quite creative solutions in some cases. Absolutely. A lot of people just moved to cafes to work if their houses were not warm enough and stuff, which I think helps the businesses in some way. But yeah, it's definitely not a normal way to run your business. Yeah, I think a lot of people would have just kind of like been like, okay, well, I'm going to give up now. And that's it. You know, especially for restaurants surviving COVID and then this. I mean, it's really, really tough. But they are, everyone I've spoken to has been very, very determined. And um, so far, fortunately, this year it's not been this so bad on the blackout front. Yeah, it's been a little bit, thankfully, quieter. Mm. Not, knock on wood. I mean, isn't there also would be just an issue of actual people? Because, you know, 
humans run those businesses, humans work in those businesses. And obviously people are affected by the air raids, by the sleepless nights, by worries. Many people have left Ukraine for, you know, worrying because of their safety. And obviously many people have been drafted or went fighting voluntarily. So how has that affected the business situation in Ukraine? It's had a big impact. Mm. It's had a really big impact. And that's something that's quite hard to mitigate at the moment. Um, so particularly companies that are quite male dominated, you know, steel factories, a lot of their men went to go and fight either voluntarily or they were drafted. So there's like a big workforce deficit. Also, there's 6 million plus Ukrainians who have moved abroad. And, you know, many of them are settling down in new countries. And many of them are highly educated and trained professionals that, you know, we could really use in Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, the hope is that a lot of people will come back to Ukraine, but in order to do that, there needs to be strong business and there needs to be a strong incentive to return back to Ukraine. In the face of all these challenges, Ukraine's government has been really focusing on funding the war and has reduced government expenditures this year, right? So private sector has all this responsibility now to support the nation through tax and job opportunities. So what support and resources do Ukrainian companies need to fulfill this critical role? You know, I think they need two things mainly, which is people and money. And those things are intertwined. Mm -hmm. The more money comes in, you know, the more the businesses can stay alive. They can employ more people. That brings more people to come back to the country and to bring people back from abroad as well. But also a lot of business leaders I spoke to, they've really, really emphasizing that they don't just want this financial aid, you know. Mm. Um, we're seeing that's kind of starting to dissipate a little bit from the US and from the EU. So they want investments instead, because with investments, you know, foreign investors can take kind of bigger risks and they can put more money in with the expectation that high risk, high reward, they're going to be making money from this. But wouldn't this also mean that, you know, if Ukrainian business and economical front and private sector is working, that Ukraine actually needs a little bit less of financial aid from outside? I mean, that would be the, the hope, right? Because actually, you know, you're starting to hear a lot of people be, you know, in, in the UK where I'm from, come up to Ukrainian friends of mine and say things like, oh, you know, we're paying for all of you guys and we're paying for your war and yada, 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 kind of blaming Ukrainians for Russia's invasion which is so infuriating. But when it's the private sector, you know, that kind of eases the burden on your taxpayer in the UK, or at least, you know, in their mind it does. And it also builds kind of long-term developments between two countries. So for foreign investors to be working with Ukrainian companies, it would be kind of a win-win for both, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the hope, right? If it works out well, it works out really, really well. I know a guy, for example, Brian Carstens, who's a businessman, from Denmark. And uh, he set up his own organization called Trade for Aid. And he's importing Ukrainian beer, Ukrainian wine and Ukrainian chocolate uh, to Denmark, where he sells it to, uh, uh, to the third party entities who then sell it. So, you know, he's making money from that. The companies, the brewery, I spoke to them, they love it. You know, they see the opportunity to expand into a new market. And people in Denmark get great Ukrainian products. Exactly, exactly. And in the long run, you know, you're going to be able to build partnerships with, between a, a foreign company and a Ukrainian company, because Ukrainian companies, they're really going to remember those that came in and helped whilst the war was ongoing, not those that just kind of waited until the end to eye up all the possibilities and opportunities. 
So aside from gaining trust from Ukrainian companies, why are foreign investments are so important now? Ukraine is really struggling on this economic war. Mm. It's, like I said earlier, a third of its GDP has been cut. And on the other hand, Russia is doing a lot better than expected on the economy, which is really frustrating. And Ukrainian businesses need support to avoid going bust. That's the kind of main crux of it all. They need to keep alive in order to keep people alive. Isn't it sad that, you know, instead of focusing on growth and exciting opportunities and all the things that Ukrainian business can achieve, we're just focusing on keeping them afloat? Yeah, but with that, you know, in the long run, uh, it will lead to growth. And I think this is what's so important about the investment now is that it's, it's kind of the building blocks for a really positive future in the reconstruction period, especially. You know, I was down in Mykolaiv, again, same, same time. And I went to this tomato factory. Can't name it for security reasons. Of course. Secretive tomato I, factory. I hear tomatoes in Mykolaiv is really, are really secretive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't talk about them, I'm no. afraid. But what was very cool is that this company, they got a loan from the Danish government. And with that loan, they were managed to buy machinery that had been destroyed in one of their factories. And now they were able to export without that machinery, but nowhere near to the same level as they were prior to the full-scale invasion. But now with this loan, they're able to buy this machinery from a Danish company, thanks to the Danish government, the loan. They are now, uh, hopefully, in the next few years, able to return to their pre-war levels. But I think what's important to remember is that the West shouldn't make the same mistakes that it did with the tanks and the jets, which it took a long time to deliver. On the moral side, you know, your investments into Ukraine's businesses will ensure that people keep their jobs, will ensure that businesses don't go bust, will ensure that life post-war will be on a strong footing. And that when people are starting to come back to the cities that we're going to liberate, that there are roads, there are infrastructure, exactly. there are businesses, there's life to come back to. Yeah, because, you know, the more income a business has, the more it's going to pay tax. And that more that tax can go towards building things like roads, reconstructing hospitals, supporting education. The circle kind of, of life. The circle of life. You know, but also for foreign investors, it's really, it's good business. You know, get in early whilst it's risky, but not as risky as people led to believe it is. And you're going to get good rewards. I mean, I think people from outside of Ukraine see this horrible footage of explosions and destructions and, you know, these barren fields. So they cannot imagine a fruitful future and the nearby future or maybe at all. I think you and I know what the reality on Ukraine is like. People watching from afar, you know, they're seeing the kind of extremities of what's happening here. They don't see kind of the everyday businesses that keep on operating. Like and the resilience and that we see every day of people keep going to work after the sleepless nights and mm. the businesses that are working and opening and actually scaling up, like of a course. lot of smaller businesses, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think people that do come to Ukraine, when they do see that, their, their mind kind of changes and they start to have, be more optimistic. And I mean, every business person I've spoken to, every investor I've spoken to, they're all optimistic about Ukraine's future and Ukraine's private sector profitability. You know, you've mentioned that foreign investments will provide more jobs. And with so many Ukrainians living abroad due to concerns of their safety, do you think Ukrainian business is key in bringing all of them back? I think it's one of the keys. So Gradus Research, which conducted a survey of Ukrainian refugees and what they need in order to come back, they listed 
security from Russian aggression as the top priority, but this was followed by job security and job opportunities. So clearly it's on the mind of refugees. They are settling into their new host countries. Some of them have, you know, new jobs. Some of them may not have very good jobs, may be frustrated. So they need to see Ukraine at least will have the opportunity to grow and develop and have more innovative and exciting opportunities there. I mean, yeah, I guess if people see future, see fruitful and see potential, they'll be willing to come back, even if there's some risks involved, they'll be willing to come back to help create that future. I hope so. I really for them hope as so. Well. Because if, if Ukraine loses between 1.3 and 3.3 million people, its GDP is going to be massively impacted as well. And it will stifle the economic growth, especially in the reconstruction period. Could be, one estimate put it, between 27 to 6.9% less annually in terms of GDP, which is alarming. So Ukraine needs people. And in order for there to be people, there need to be jobs. Mm-hmm. And also in terms of the reconstruction process itself, you know, this is estimated to be $411 billion dollars at the moment. Yeah, big, scary number. Big, 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 scary number. And that could get a lot higher as well. So that cannot all be paid for by Ukraine's government, clearly. Obviously, we would love it if we could get that you know, money from Russia and, and make them pay for this. That's what's just. But you know, that might not be the case. And it's unlikely that the, the West and Ukraine's allies are going to be able to give all of that money as well. So it's going to have to have a combination of the private sector and investments coming in. And there's a lot of opportunities and possibilities here. The, the IFC, which is the kind of investment arm of the World Bank, you know, they estimate that if Ukraine makes some reforms in some of its private sector, including kind of energy and agriculture and so on, you know, they could attract a third of the reconstruction costs in investments, which would be wonderful. That'd be great. And, yeah. and you know, like that's with potential of growth as well. It's not just, you know, the... That, that's just the money you get, like with foreign aid, because this is business is growing, mm. private sector is exactly. growing. So, yeah, I and mean, of course, we want to be careful that its investments are kind of fairly shared as well. It shouldn't just be going to kind of these big companies that are often owned by oligarchs, but it should also go to encouraging innovation in Ukraine as well and small businesses and small farmers too. And I think that, uh, you know, those, those shouldn't be overlooked. Since you made that point, you know, anytime you talk with foreigners, the topic of corruption in Ukraine comes up inevitably. So how big is the issue of corruption when talking about foreign investments? I mean, it is uh, certainly on the minds of everyone I've spoken to. Uh, Ukraine's reputation, you know, is that Ukraine is trying to battle that reputation and the government are making some steps in that direction. But you still have, you know, corruption on a low level, you still have the oligarchs, and the impact is being felt, certainly in companies that I've spoken to, foreign companies that are trying to initiate projects here in Ukraine. So there was one company I met called Neo Echo, they're French. They are an environmental reconstruction, environmental construction company. So they're pretty cool. What they are doing is they've, there was five apartment blocks, war-torn apartment blocks in the town of Hostomel, just outside of Kiev, being occupied. So they destroyed all these apartment blocks. They kind of tore them all down. And what they're doing is they're recycling the material. So they are kind of, they've been sorting it through and, and crushing it and 
they've now kind of got all these kind of uh, stones and sand That's that really they're going to cool. use to rebuild five because new apartment using- blocks the actual buildings to make new buildings. So yeah. it's kind of, you know, we're not just erasing the history, erasing. But it's also just not, it's more environmental because otherwise the, this debris from apartment blocks kind of just gets left in fields where, you know, like chemicals leak into the ground. It's not great. So super cool idea. A lot of people loved it, including, you know, the residents of those old apartment blocks. Problem was, is the administration of Hostomel. So they, without going too deeply into this, you know, they essentially kind of pressured Neo Echo out of the project and said, okay, now we're going to basically take over all these materials. You're not going to be able to construct anything and we're going to do what we want with these materials, which are worth like 800,000 euros. You know, they could either, they could use it to rebuild something or they could just sell those materials, the administration I'm talking about. Are the actionable steps that Ukraine can take to move away further from corruption? It's a good question. Uh, you know, of course, the government needs to do more. They need to increase the punishments for corrupt individuals to show that they're really taking this seriously and to also deter people in the long run. I think a lot of Ukrainians feel that way. Then also it's, you know, equally it's about foreign companies also not kind of, you know, seeing an opportunity to, to abuse and exploit the corruption in Ukraine and, and not to encourage it. You know, they should also be doing things above board. For example. Like, what can they do to, you know, work against corruption or, you know, mm. to be prepared for it, I guess. So going back to Denmark in Mykolaiv, I'm using this as, a, as an example because I think it's really interesting. Is it so, the only trip you've been to in Ukraine? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> only trip I went on recently related to investments. So the Denmark, Danish government who are giving loans to companies in Mykolaiv, they have around 20 projects at the moment, but they actually dropped two because of corruption allegations. Even though that they wasn't proven to be corrupt, these allegations were enough for them to say, okay, we're taking a step back. We're not going to involve these people. We're going to focus on those that we really know are Better honest. Better safe than sorry. Exactly. So I think this is what can be done. One interesting measure I've seen is by the Nordic Environment Finance Corporation. So they have their own agreements in place since 2010 with the Ukrainian government. And they have 2 million euros that they're going to allocate to Hostomel to repair water infrastructure. Now, under these agreements, what they can do is they are going to allocate that money directly to local partners and local contractors. So that money doesn't go into the hands of the Hostomel administration, which, you know, Neo Echo had problems with. So Dominic, with war continuing and issues like corruption, are there foreign investors that are coming to Ukraine? There, there are, not enough. But there are some coming in. So Denmark has really led the way, as I keep saying, in Mikolaev. Uh, I love Denmark. We love Denmark. Thank uh, you, Denmark. Yeah, they're, they're a cool, cool, cool little country. And so they have something called the Export and Investment Fund. And the, this is the branch that is finding the companies in Mikolaev Oblast to give loans to. And they have to be deemed profitable and successful. And actually, it's been a pretty cool success so far. And Zelensky even visited Mikolaev, when I was there, although I didn't see him, unfortunately, and he was telling other countries to follow suit, you know, that they should get in and and follow a similar model to Denmark. Of course, you have like the big investors, there's the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. They've been giving loans. They supported Ukrainian railways, Leon in the war, as well as the International Finance Corporation as well. They've been finding investments. And all of them, you know, they're all optimistic. 
about Ukraine's private sector and its future. And of course, you know, they're not doing this out of the goodness of their own heart, you know, they want to get money from it as well. Uh, so they're obviously willing to take the risk, but they're willing to get a lot of money in return. And I think that should hopefully instill confidence in other investors as well. Well, speaking about risk, I mean, it makes sense that it would be unnerving to set up business or any sort of operation in the country where it, there is war and whatever you've built and set up could be destroyed at any moment. Is there any insurance against, you know, missiles, drones, you know, war insurance? Oh, there, there, there is. And I, I really, first of all, I want to say that I understand why people are hesitant. You know, there, there are big risks. There was an example of in Odessa, a, right? in Odessa, this company called Nibelon, this an agricultural giant. They had, uh, using a loan from Denmark, <laughs> they wanted to build a grain silo and they started to. But unfortunately, uh, it was hit by Russia and destroyed. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a reality. What's happening is war risk insurance projects. So Denmark has one. They also kind of cover for nationalization as well. That's when you know, the government comes in and takes over your company for whatever reason that may be. So those are options available for a, 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 an investor going in. They can pay for this war risk insurance. EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, they also have developed war risk insurance program, as has the UK. So there are options available for people. In the Netherlands, the Dutch Foreign Trade and Development Ministry, they've allocated 60 million euros for Dutch companies that want to invest in Ukraine. So there are options available for, for investors here, uh, depending on, of course, where you're from. So what you're saying, Dominic, is that foreign investors just need to take a leap of faith and come into Ukraine now and not wait until the victory. There's a lot of opportunities in Ukraine and a lot of Ukrainians who also want to make opportunities as well. And I know I keep going on about like the resilience of Ukrainian businesses, but I kind of want to sum it not with one of these big companies that I've told you about, but with a smaller one I saw again back in my favorite city, Mykolaiv. I was walking through the downtown and I passed this shop front maybe like three times and it was an electronic shop covered in, in shrapnel damage. There was an Apple logo with like a just giant hole in it and steps missing leading up to a front door that was just boarded up with plywood. And I thought, obviously, this, this shop is, you know, another victim of the Russian siege in, in 2022. So I was super shocked when this couple just opened the door and walked in. And inside there was, you know, phones and headphones and laptops. I mean, it was a fully functioning store. Yeah, fully functioning store. And, you know, I was really surprised by that. But, you know, even on the outside, if things may look quite grim and, and tough. And you know, covered with boxes and plywood. And covered with boxes and plywood. You just need to go in and see all the opportunities that, that are there. And I really also, you know, want to stress investors shouldn't overlook Ukraine's small and medium-sized businesses. There's a lot of entrepreneurial Ukrainians here. A lot of people making products, you know, also not just to make money, but also to improve their own country as well. This is why I fell in love with Ukraine in the first place, this love of, of the country and improving it and making it better and coming up with really creative ideas. You can see that in, in just last year when all these entrepreneurs were registered in Ukraine. It was in October last year, saw one of the greatest number of entrepreneurs registered in Ukraine since the start of the invasion. And a lot of people, you know, they were, you know, became unemployed after the, the war started, but they have these ideas and they registered as entrepreneurs. 
And now they're really looking for a boost and don't forget about them. And now we're going to move on to the questions from our community. If you would like to ask us one of these questions for our future episodes, you should become a member of our community. It is pretty easy to do. You just go to kievindependent.com slash membership and become a member, or you can support us with one-time donation or monthly donations. So the question, people have been making donations to Ukrainian charitable organization might be willing to also invest in reconstruction and business. However, they may not know what options are available. Other government or business bonds or other vehicles that could be publicized through Kiev Independent. Is this something that Business Desk is looking into? Uh, so thank you for the question, community. It's a good one. So there are state bonds issued by the Ukrainian government that you can buy. I think there's even just an online process. So do a little Google and uh, you'll be able to buy your own state bond to support Ukraine. You know, if you can't, like the other people uh, who I've talked about today, go into Ukraine and find a company to partner up with, you know, just go online and go to Etsy and buy some Ukrainian products there. Or, you know, if you see something in your local supermarket, you know, even just little things like that, that supports Ukraine's economy and Ukrainian businesses. Thank you, Dominic. It was so nice to have you here. Thank you very much, Masha. You can find the show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like and comment. You can even suggest topics for future upcoming episodes. And subscribe to us so you never miss a new episode. If you would like to support us, make sure to go to kievindependent.com membership and consider becoming a member of our community. Or you can donate to us on a monthly basis or a one-time off donation. We're just grateful for your support in any way possible. You can also support us by following us on social media like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thank you for listening.